Shalom, and welcome to Inside Israel News, your source for unbiased and thorough analysis of Israeli news, politics, and current events in the Middle East. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. What you heard was the sound of fighting in Kharkov in eastern Ukraine as uh, Russia continues its unprovoked aggression, invading the sovereign country of Ukraine, uh, mostly over economic issues and uh, political issues related to President Vladimir Putin and his efforts to stay in power. While the people of Ukraine continue to fight to try to preserve their country, uh, we see an international response that is very much too little too late, and uh, it almost seems as though Ukraine has been sold out already. <clears throat> so this is the situation that prevails uh, there. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that soon. I have been wanting to get an episode out for some time. Unfortunately, I, I had a, an industry conference I had to attend, and then I lost my voice, so that, that didn't help. Uh, if you can hear, I'm a little scratchy. I'm just kind of coming back. This is the earliest day I felt I could possibly get an episode out. And, uh, well, here you go. Before I dive too deeply into Ukraine, of course, we have our favorite topic here on Inside Israel News, Iran. Uh, Defense Minister Gantz has said that uh, he believes an Iran deal could be signed sometime in the coming weeks. And uh, it is not entirely clear this is, this is me expanding on that. It's not entirely clear what kind of deal uh, is being negotiated. <clears throat> of course, with the ongoing conflict in Ukraine and everyone so distracted, uh, it's easy to sneak in an Iran deal that would be very favorable to Iran and would not prevent it from developing nuclear weapons, which was basically the case last time when the Obama deal was signed. So there is much to be concerned about there. Uh, the news from Ukraine has uh, been used also to, uh, I want to say, to excuse economic problems here in the U.S., everybody trying to blame high gas prices on Ukraine. Gas prices were rising extremely quickly. <laughs> they were rising uh, astronomically before <clears throat> the uh, crisis in Ukraine, and they will continue to rise. Uh, this is a, a, the result of a, a culmination of many bad policies that are being uh, implemented by the current administration. We've also seen freedom convoys in the United States after the protesters were cleared out of Canada, out of Ottawa in uh, Canada. Uh, we've seen a growing number of protests here in the U.S., and uh, that has already seen some change. Uh, the U.S. Senate passed a uh, resolution declaring the COVID emergency over, and uh, we'll see how things proceed from here. But as I said before, the... Uh, uh, the whole follow the science thing has led the Democrats from the, the follow the science to follow the political science. And looking at the polls, they realize that they're dead on arrival in the coming election. And if they want to uh, preserve whatever dignity they can and lose as few seats as possible, they're going to need to uh, get rid of the, uh, the COVID emergency and kind of get people back to normal. And uh, that seems to be happening. Uh, Follow the science has led too much to, uh, or all too often, to follow the money. And uh, now it's follow the political science. So <clears throat> that's, uh, that's where things have led now. There's also a Supreme Court nomination pending uh, before the Senate. So 
Uh, the Ukraine crisis has buried in the news cycle a lot of things that are going on right now. Uh, and uh, the Ukraine uh, situation, while it is important, you know, we still need to be paying attention to what's going on in the negotiations with Iran and in uh, larger economic news globally and other problems. Uh, China has begun agitating against Taiwan. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're, we're, there's a lot of people who are concerned that Iran will take advantage of the situation uh, of American weakness. Uh, it's not clear what's going to happen next, but uh, it is a disastrous time. It is a disastrous time. Another Iran nuclear deal uh, that is weak and toothless will be a big problem for Israel. Uh, it will create the perception that uh, Iran is cooperating with the international community, which makes an Israeli strike on Iran impolitic and uh, difficult to carry out. It will also uh, give Iran cover to continue the slow development of ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons that they will then have uh, available to them at some future date. Uh, and it, it's going to be a big problem for us. Uh, I've talked at length about Iran's goals in the region, why they want a nuclear weapon, and why they continue to aspire for them. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> we need to have a really tough sanction regime that uh, leads to regime change. This is one of those, those realities of human nature, right? Until the Iranian regime is replaced with a regime that is not the world sponsor, the world's greatest sponsor of terrorism, to a regime that is not bent on conquering its neighbors, a regime that is not bent on developing nuclear weapons so it can terrorize its neighbors. Uh, until that happens, we're, we're stuck with the same thing. It's going to be constantly uh, coming back to this same problem. But uh, some people don't seem to see that. <laughs> uh, anyway. In Israeli news, Israel is slowly returning to normal. Uh, tourists are returning to Israel. The, uh, the Omicron variant turned out to be a dud. There are some studies suggesting that it is better than the vaccine at offering immunity uh, to the illness. And uh, basically, I think everyone in the world is ready to move on. <clears throat> Except for, you know, Justin Trudeau, Castro, or Let's Go Brando, <laughs> and a few others who want to hold on to the emergency in order to exercise uh, uh, unhumanitarian, uh, counter-humanitarian, I want to say, uh, you know, to, to violate human rights, to continue to violate people's freedoms and, uh, and hold them uh, hostage to a political agenda. So uh, this, is, this is the situation is it going to get any better? Who knows? Uh, in the Ukraine situation, this is an opportunity to highlight Israel's rising star as a regional power and Israel's growing importance in the world because Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky has reached out to Prime Minister Bennett as a mediator, <clears throat> someone both sides can trust to provide communication between Vladimir Putin and uh, President Zelensky. Well, uh, that is uh, going pretty well. Uh, so far, Bennett has been to Moscow to meet with uh, Putin, and uh, he has also uh, facilitated communication and offers between them. And while negotiations have not gone well, they haven't created a solution to the crisis, and, and that I'll explain why in a minute, uh, they have uh, been borne some fruit. There have been some ceasefires called for humanitarian reasons to evacuate certain cities and what have you, although... Uh, Obviously, the Ukrainians uh, accuse the Russians of violating these ceasefires, especially in Mariupol. Uh, 
the continued uh, dialogue is important. And it is uh, really, in, in the middle of the darkness of the crisis, it's really uh, impressive to see Israel rising in the world to be a more important player. You know, someone, uh, you know, a nation whose importance is growing in the region. So that's, uh, that's one thing there. Uh, a number of young Jews and young Israelis have chosen to stay in Ukraine to fight for Ukraine. Uh, there were uh, evacuations going on earlier on, and uh, the, a lot of those planes had empty seats, and people were noticing that a lot of uh, uh, you know, dual citizen, right, these are not just Israelis <coughs> like going to Ukraine to fight, but Ukrainians who also have Israeli citizenship, uh, a lot of them are choosing to stay and fight. Uh, so discussing uh, the Ukraine situation vis-a-vis Israel, uh, Israel is, is helping with the humanitarian situation the best it can. It is providing a channel for negotiations. And a number of Israeli citizens who live in Ukraine are choosing to stay and uh, fight for Ukraine. So this is, this is an interesting time. Uh, we're, we're watching uh, dark events unfold, but there are some pluses in that. Like I said, Israel's star is rising. All right, coming back to Ukraine and the Ukraine crisis, uh, addressing that directly. Uh, I want to take a step back. I, I hate I told you so's. Uh, there's a lot of those happening now. Um, most of my adult life and even into my teen years, I've been writing about, uh, even back in the 90s, <laughs> like I said, in my teen years, I was writing about how uh, NATO was no longer necessary. It could be dissolved. It did not need to be expanded eastward. Uh, I <clears throat> opposed the bombing of Serbia which uh, infuriated the Russians in, in expanding NATO eastward, in bombing Serbia, in agitating against the Russians. We convinced Boris Yeltsin that we weren't very sincere in our, uh, <clears throat> I want to say, in our, in our change of attitude after the Cold War. And so uh, he went through a series of prime ministers until he found Vladimir Putin, right? He found a, a tough guy, a KGB thug, <clears throat> whom he knew would, would keep Russia strong. And so Putin came to office. And this was in the middle of the, the Chechen rebellion. Well, you know, Putin put an end to the Chechen rebellion. Uh, the very, very simple and, and effective tactic by putting an end to the Chechens. If there are no Chechen people in Chechnya, then there is no independence movement in Chechnya, right? So they, <clears throat> they bombed cities flat and uh, cleanse the area, you know, a lot of ethnic cleansing, a lot of bombing, a lot of killing, and, you know, no Chechens, no rebellion. And since then, Putin has been slowly working to put back together the Soviet Union, uh, which he feels is, uh, you know, the greatest geopolitical disaster in history, he felt, was the fall of the Soviet Union. In any case, uh, as he's done this, the U.S. has continued to expand NATO and uh, continue to participate in it even as NATO partners weren't keeping up their end of the bargain. Uh, NATO has not been paying for its own defense. Uh, not in the, you know, they've been, they've been uh, cheating, you know, not paying as much as they're supposed to for their own national security, letting us pay the defense bill. And so I've had a lot of, you know, snot-nosed college students saying, well, we want a social system just like Europe's. And I'm like, well, that's great, Europe. You know, they have a great social system financed by a free market, but where Uncle Sam's paying the defense bill, right? <clears throat> So these problems brought us to a point where <clears throat> we are now in direct confrontation with Russia. 
Uh, and we watched in 2008 as uh, Putin used the uh, independence movements, or rather the, the sort of fractious nature of Georgian politics uh, in Abkhazia and South Ossetia, to use uh, those as an excuse to invade Georgia and <clears throat> prevent Georgia from de- joining NATO. And basically, he took over Georgia. Not quite completely, but he did it. And so now Russia basically has sway with all of the former Soviet republics, except Ukraine. And in Putin's recent speech, where he talked about history, (laughs) his own revisionist history, talking about how Lenin and Stalin were too soft, too nice. They appealed too greatly to people's nationalist uh, tendencies, uh, basically saying that there should never have been a Soviet Republic of Ukraine, or that these these concepts of Soviet republics were a bad idea. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, <laughs> wow. Stalin was too soft, you know. Too nice a guy, Stalin. Oh, boy. So this is, this is where Putin's coming from. And he wants it all back. Um, he's made it very clear. He wants Ukraine. He wants Romania, Bulgaria, Yugoslavia, right? He wants Poland, Hungary, Czech, uh, the Czech, well, Czechia and Slovakia now, what was Czechoslovakia, and the Baltic states. I and mean, he wants it all back. He wants the Russian Empire, uh, you know, even to the, beyond the extent of, of Soviet control of the, so he wants to go beyond the Soviet borders to the Russian Empire and also what uh, the Soviet Union had influence over in Eastern Europe. And it's psychotic. <clears throat> uh, but don't, don't take... Putin is some kind of uh, lame madman who's just throwing his weight around. He's very calculating. He's very precise. He's playing chess while everyone else is playing checkers. Uh, He plays the long game, and he has a strategy here. And you can see how he set this up. He carefully waited out the Trump years, knowing that that, that he couldn't pull this off while Donald Trump was president. And uh, now that America has a weaker president, a president who, uh, you know, Putin has been funneling money to Hunter Biden, the president's son, for a number of years. So <clears throat> now, now we have some understanding as to why. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we have this situation where he's able to move in to Ukraine. He knows there's going to be economic consequences. But those aren't all bad for Putin because the more suffering Russians uh, feel, uh, the more he can blame that on everyone else. Right. It's back to, you know, we are Russians. We are proud and everybody's picking on us. Right. We're liberating Ukraine from Nazis and, you know, whatever propaganda he has. And and some Americans are buying this stuff. So I'm very (laughs) it's very frustrating. Uh, But I'll come back to that. All right. So what are Putin's objectives here? It's obvious he wants Ukraine. Uh, He has uh, a strategy here to do to Ukraine exactly what he did to Georgia. Uh, He's recognized the independence of the Donbass region and uh, which you know, there was fighting there for all these years because Russian troops basically took off their Russian uniforms and played paramilitary in these regions, uh, stirring up uh, ethnic tensions between ethnic uh, Russians and Ukrainians in that region. In any case, so that's a false conflict in and of itself. That's Putin himself creating that conflict, right? So he started that conflict in Donbass so that he could dismember Ukraine. Now he has an, an excuse to say that region is independent of Ukraine and uh, for Russian troops to move in. They've also moved into other parts of Ukraine. And, uh, you know, he he can pretty easily establish in southern Ukraine along the Black Sea coast and in the east uh, a rump state of Ukraine 
uh, everything, uh, again, south along the the Black Sea and then uh, everything that is uh, east of the Dniester, north and east of the Dniester River. And if you're familiar with your history, that's where the Vikings or uh, Varangians as the the as the Byzantine Romans called them, uh, where they came down. And so that's basically where the first polity in the Kiev region was founded. And uh, it's an important part of uh, Ukrainian history and the sense of Ukrainian national pride. So uh, he, he, he can do that. Like he could take Kiev, he could take the capital, he could force the Ukrainians back into a rump state uh, centered on uh, Lviv in uh, what was Poland at one time, <laughs> before Stalin, in any case. Uh, and uh, that would create a sort of landlocked state, uh, kind of wedged between the rump Ukrainian-occupied state and uh, uh, Belarus. Uh, and, you know, it would still border some uh, European countries. But it would certainly be far less than it, what it was. That could be valuable. That could that could do a lot for Putin. It will strengthen him at home. He'll look like the the tough Iron Man that he wants to be, you know, man of steel, <clears throat> right? But uh, Ukraine has a large number of gas reserves off its coast in the Black Sea, and uh, there's significant oil reserves both in the east and in the west of Ukraine. Uh, so Putin would have half their oil reserves by taking the east and most of their natural gas. So the possibility that Ukraine could invite Western companies in and become a competing energy producer, right, <clears throat> competing with Russia economically, that is basically nixed if he can take that territory. And, uh, and so far, the Russians are doing that. So a lot of people are talking about the Ukrainian resistance and how great it's been, and, and this leads to... Uh, you know, may, might lead uh, Putin to retreat and fall back. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be too excited. I wouldn't be too keen to uh, celebrate just yet because at this point, Putin is winning. He's getting everything he wants. <clears throat> it's been a little bit embarrassing and a little bit less um, expeditious. <laughs> let's just say I mean, it has not gone exactly the way he might have wanted it to, but he's still winning. <clears throat> he's still taking over. Uh, significant parts of Ukraine and the most important parts for Ukraine's future. Meanwhile, Ukrainians are struggling. They're struggling to evacuate their cities. They're struggling to survive. Uh, they are they're doing what they can to fight and resist. And you know, we're seeing some, you know, they're, they're certainly seeing some benefits. Their air defense systems have proven to be more mobile and more capable than the Russians thought. So they've been able to maintain a degree of air supremacy, uh, preventing Russians from using their aircraft with impunity. So that is certainly uh, to the credit of Ukraine. And they're using uh, their uh, drones to attack behind Russian lines, destroying uh, fuel dumps, supplies, ammunition, uh, vehicles, and hampering Russian efforts to invade. So that, that has helped a lot. Where did they get some of these systems? Well, uh, Barack Obama had refused to give weapons to Ukraine. And now... Uh, <clears throat> The uh, the Trump administration in the intervening years decided to arm Ukraine with these drones and these defense air defense systems. So Ukraine is using that to great effect. So we can see that if we if Ukraine had not been armed by the United States for the four years of the Trump presidency, they would certainly not be resisting as well as they are now. So uh, once again, so going over what what are 
Putin's goals here, right? So he wants to prevent Ukraine from becoming a competing energy power. He wants to uh, establish control of Ukraine. Now, he may, he, may not, he may not stop with that rump state, that landlocked rump Ukraine. Like He may go ahead and invade that too. And there are a lot of people arguing that, well, he can never occupy it. It's too difficult. You know, back to Chechnya. If there are no Chechens, there is no Chechen rebellion, right? This is the 21st century. We watched the horrors of the 20th century. Nobody should be making the argument that he cannot occupy Ukraine. Because he can drive, he's already driven millions of, uh, you know, like one and a half million Ukrainians now are registered refugees with the UN. Uh, He can drive Ukrainians out and force us, you know, kind of dare us to relocate them, right? Where are we going to put them? Well, you know, spread them all over Europe, okay? But, uh, you know, he can do that. And those who remain, he can kill. We We have seen the horrors of industrial mass murder in the 20th century by Stalin by Hitler, by Mao, uh, and with, uh, you know, shovels, basically, by Pol Pot, right? You'd have people line up and, you'd, you know, they'd, they'd kill all of the people he thought were too intelligent, who weren't peasants, right, with shovels. <laughs> so, I mean, just, you know, just kill millions of people that way. So Putin knows his history and he knows he can do that. So let us not uh, kid ourselves here. Ukrainians are putting up a great resistance and... One can hope, one can hope that uh, there will be some pushback, that somehow this would cause Putin to lose power in Russia. That's really the only way this ends in a favorable light for the West, is if Russians are able to push him out of power. Well, there have been some peace protests in Russia. There are some Russians fleeing for Finland. There's some other stories like that. But so far, no big push, you know, generally speaking, most of the Russian population, either thanks to the propaganda delusions uh, put forward by the Russian government or otherwise uh, because they want to believe it. And that's, that's the thing people forget. <clears throat> you know, they always wonder, you know, well, you know, people should have known Hitler was lying, you know, all this Ubermensch stuff and whatever. Well, people didn't want to think he was lying, right? People wanted to believe the lies because those delusions made them superior people after being trod upon by Europe. Everybody is picking on us, but if we're the superior people, then we can feel good about ourselves and we'll go, you know, take what's ours, right? We'll take back our pride. It, it you know, it's human nature. You know what I mean? People want to feel powerful. They want to feel strong. So a lot of people are going to go along with this, but one can hope. <clears throat> so technically his demands of NATO... Uh, were put forward in an eight-point treaty that he wants signed with the West that basically says NATO has to withdraw back to uh, pre-Cold War lines, right? He's willing to tolerate U.S. forces and, and allied forces in East Germany, which is now the you know unified Germany, but nowhere else. He wants NATO to pull out of the Baltic states, out of Poland, out of Eastern Europe altogether. And obviously NATO can't do that because if we do that, we hand all of that to Putin. Right. If those countries are not being defended by the U.S., then he can march right in any time. Right. Um, <clears throat> he wants guarantees that Ukraine will never join NATO, obviously. Um, and uh, uh, there's, you know, a few other things in there. You know, he wants to prevent eastward expansion and what have you. You know, he he's talking about uh, NATO and allies offering legal guarantees of Russian security. Right. Now, this is an interesting concept here. And, and going back to those 
issues of delusions, right? NATO is made up of democratic countries that do not seek war, right? Since the end of the Second World War, NATO countries, with one exception, have not invaded or attacked anyone. Uh, when uh, Greece went to uh, annex Cyprus, Turkey and Greece went to war with each other. And I want to say they had good reasons they thought to go to war with one another, but they're both NATO members, okay? NATO is not an aggressive institution. We're not out to conquer the world. We're not out to take over, right? NATO was a defensive alliance to prevent the Soviet Union from occupying Western Europe. There was a fear, and a very reasonable one, <clears throat> that Stalin would go and pick apart Western countries. You know, he'd cause some, you know, riots and troubles in Italy, and then he'd take Italy. And while no one was looking, he'd cause some riots and some troubles in Norway, and he'd take Norway, right? Little bit by little bit, he'd just pick off a country here and a country there, and maybe invade Denmark, and then after taking Denmark, you know, uh, you know, you might pick apart the Netherlands and so on and so forth. So to prevent that from happening, all those countries came together and said, well, we're one entity. You attack one of us and you attack all of us. And the United States being a member of that meant that obviously uh, that meant uh, there were nuclear implications for Russian invasion of Western Europe. There is no Soviet Union. The threat is gone. NATO should not exist anymore. But it does. And uh, I'm not legitimizing Putin's point by saying it, but I, I said since I was a kid that NATO should have been dissolved and it should not have been expanded eastward. Well, <clears throat> now it has. Now we're in this situation where we're stuck with the situation that it is. When I wrote my article 10 years ago uh, containing the Russian bear, encircling the Russian bear, my plan was that the U.S. should move closer to Russia in the sense that we, we would build strong military alliances with like Poland, Hungary, and Romania and create a containment of Russia, essentially, but leave Ukraine neutral and not try to uh, take over in Russian territories or, or where, where Russia feels its influence uh, should be felt. And in that regard, uh, by saying that, that Ukraine was beyond NATO and beyond the European Union, we would create, hopefully, a peaceful, sustainable, peaceful situation. Uh, <clears throat> that's no longer the case. So what I wrote there is now out the door. Now that we're in a conflict, it's one of those things that, you know, once the game begins, right, once you blow the whistle, all the training, all the preparation, all the strategy sessions, everything you did up to that point, no longer matter. Now it's the game, <clears throat> right? So the new reality is we can't back down. Uh, to do the things that I wanted to see done, for the last quarter century, would now be surrendering to Putin. We can't dissolve NATO because now we have to defend Europe against a Russian aggressor. So now that we're in this situation, what do we do? And that's the tricky question. Uh, what, what should be done? What can be done? Uh, we can't surrender to Putin, obviously, uh, but neither can we really come to Ukraine's defense. If NATO forces move into Ukraine, uh, it will justify Putin's propaganda, first of all, to his own people, and thus strengthen their resolve. Uh, but also, it would be foolish for the allies of a major nuclear power to go to war with, or, or to be in a, a conflict zone with a major nuclear power, right? Uh, Russia's only claim to being in uh, a world power is its nuclear arsenal, because they really can't afford the kind of military that the Soviet Union maintained. So here we are, right? Here, here it is. What, what happens now? 
We can hope that the Ukrainians are able to defend themselves, that their staunch resistance is enough to uh, you know, convince Russians that they need to get rid of Putin and retreat. Uh, but uh, I, I wouldn't hope too strongly for that. <clears throat> he, uh, he's a very entrenched dictator. Uh, he's been uh, in, in, in power for 20 years now. You know, he's not going anywhere anytime soon. What's, what's sad about that, uh, you know, it, it, would be, it would be nice if, if he were gone and <clears throat> Russians could have uh, democracy and we could be more friendly and we could then make uh, treaties that would really reduce the Russian nuclear arsenal. And uh, you want to talk about a cost savings to the U.S. I mean, then we could reduce our nuclear arsenal, which we have to rebuild now. We're, we're having to build new uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles and new ballistic missile submarines and new bombers for our uh, strategic forces. It would be, <clears throat> it would save us a lot of money if we could sit down with a rational and stable democratic Russian regime and negotiate that away and just say, well, if, if Russia will uh, reduce its arms to such and such a level, we'll reduce our arms to such and such a level. And then things are, are cool from there. And we could trust that they would actually follow through. You know, we've made these kinds of deals with Putin and we have not followed through. <clears throat> uh, we have followed through, I should say. They have not followed through. The, the Russians will say that they'll reduce their number of active missiles to such and such a level, but then they don't. You know, they reduce it a little bit, but not to what they agreed, you know. And so this is it. This is the confrontation. On the one hand, there's not much we can do but sit back. Uh, the sanctions aren't going to do much to Russia and uh, we, we just have to kind of sit back and watch. But at the same time, a lot is on the line. If uh, Putin is able to take Ukraine, he's not going to stop with Ukraine. <clears throat> and that's a big problem for the West. Now, for Israel and the situation in the Middle East, obviously the uh, negotiations with Iran are a much greater concern in the immediate sense because that's a real threat to Israel. But Putin has uh, Assad as an ally Right. So Russian forces are not very far from Israel. And while Israel has gone to lengths not to antagonize Russia, uh, obviously Putin accepts Bennett as a mediator. Right. Uh, we're we're seeing some issues that uh, Israel cannot ignore in terms of Israel's own situation. Uh, they have to be very careful and shrewd to use the uh, you know, King James biblical version, we have to play, they have to deal shrewdly with the Russians and, and be very, very smart with them. But Iran is obviously the greater threat. <clears throat> and with Iran growing more powerful in the face of Western weakness, uh, I mean, the only positive to that is that Israel and the Arab states will continue to grow closer together. So, uh, <clears throat> but, it, but it is something worrying. It is something disconcerting. So that is where Israel has to be uh, careful and play its cards very carefully uh, in international affairs. Well, I apologize for the shorter than usual episode. Again, my voice, um, really struggling to be able to record this. I don't know if you can hear the difference, but I can. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm trying to, I tried to get through as uh, a thorough analysis and offer it as concisely this time as I could, given uh, the circumstances. So I'm going to conclude with this, uh, something I turned to in, in sad times that uh, also uh, offers a little bit of hope. But uh, during the exile, when the Israelites had been kicked out of 
uh, Yehuda, the, the kingdom of Yehuda, and forced into uh, the cities of uh, Mesopotamia, Chaldea, Babylon, basically. Uh, a, uh, they, they wrote a lament. We call this book uh, Lamentations in, in English, Echa. Uh, in Hebrew, but it's similar to the Lament of Ur, which uh, was written after Ur's destruction. It's basically an Israelite take on the the Lament of Ur, and the first two verses of it, uh, of chapter one, uh, always ring with me. Uh, And so I'm going to read them uh, in these dark times to offer uh, some sadness and some hope uh, directly from uh, the biblical text. How does the city sit solitary? That was full of people. How has she become a widow? She that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces. How has she become a tributary? She weeps in the night and her tears are on her cheeks. She has no comfort among her lovers. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. And uh, as sad as that passage is. And, and sometimes it feels like everybody's against you and there's no hope. I, I also kind of follow that with the thought that uh, the Israelites did return to Jerusalem and rebuilt its walls and rebuilt the temple. Uh, and uh, Jews being kicked out of the region again centuries later, we have also returned again and rebuilt uh, the nation of, you know, the now the state of Israel once again. So, you know, we have these dark moments. We have these dark times when things just seem to be going all wrong and uh, they can be turned around. Uh, things can get better. We can only hope. So I will uh, offer that uh, ray of <laughs> sunshine, <laughs> such as it is. So with that, I will say, as always, goodbye. Lahitrod.